Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 151, The Testament of Solomon and the Solomonic Tradition, Part 2. Well, gentle listeners, we spent the previous episode getting here, but here we are, some time in late antiquity, probably around the 3rd century, ready to have a look at a Christian magical novella known as the Testament of Solomon. As usual, we can't resist just kind of going through the text and seeing what's in there, descriptive scholarship as it is known, but we'll pause quite a bit to tease out some more general conclusions along the way analytic scholarship, in case you were wondering. And we shall also be following little threads into the future along the way, checking out the tradition and some of the echoes of this text and the lore behind this text in the later Western esoteric traditions. As last episode, Dueling's translation is our text, based on the Greek established by Macown, and all the number references are to Macown's sections and line numbers. And before we proceed, a note on McCown. His edition of the text came out in 1922, so it is freely and legally available online. See the episode notes for a link. Highly, highly recommended, and in particular, for all you addressative magic heads out there, you want to check out McCown's extensive descriptions of alternative manuscript traditions of the Testament. Because, as we sort of alluded to last time, this text mutates from what it seems to have been in late antiquity, the magical novella, into the wide, muddy stream of medieval Solomonic tradition, so that we end up with recensions of the text which are much more like super-heavy conjuring grimoires than magical novellas. For those, check out McCown, or keep listening to the podcast, or both. So here are the opening lines of the Testament of Solomon, or rather, one version of the opening lines. The opening varies a lot from manuscript to manuscript, and the different iterations are clearly added on to the text in some way. Most of the Testament is spoken in the first person by Solomon himself, but this little intro bit is written in the third person and is telling us what we can look forward to in this gem of a book from a kind of narrator's perspective. As often with antique documents, the text doesn't really have what we know as a title, but we take our modern title again as often, from the work's own description of what it is. In this case, one variant tells us that the work is the, quote, Testament of Solomon, son of King David, who reigned in Jerusalem and subdued all the spirits of the air, of the earth, and under the earth. Through them, he also accomplished all the magnificent works of the temple. This tells what their authorities are against men, and by what angels these demons are thwarted. End of quote. Two things to note here before we dive into Solomon's first-hand account. Demonology and cosmology. Cosmology first. Note that the demons are spirits, quote, of the air of the earth and under the earth. End of quote. This is actually a pointer toward what kind of world we are looking at in this text. A basic tripartite cosmology of Heavens above, underworld below, and Middle Earth sandwiched in between. This is the kind of world that Bronze Age people around the Mediterranean generally lived in. And it has a long life in the Abrahamic faiths. 
So even when Hellenistic Greeks had long since come up with a much more compelling cosmological model, see episode 40 of the podcast, we often find Jewish and Christian texts holding on to this basic tripartite structure. Cosmological ideas are very slow to shift. To take a current example, we still talk about sunrise and sunset, even though we're allegedly convinced in the modern world that the earth is the one turning and the sun isn't actually doing the rising and setting. This is just an example of the kind of conservative language, the way that we can talk about cosmology using very, very old, outmoded tropes, despite the fact that we no longer believe those tropes to really describe the world. But it's a little more complex than that in this text. The cosmology of the Testament of Solomon does involve aspects of Hellenistic, even Greco-Egyptian, astronomy astrology. The demons which appear in the text are associated with astral bodies or zodiacal signs. Astral fate does appear in a kind of attenuated form at one point. And best of all, the decans appear, the 36 divisions of the sky, which, as we know, were originally of Egyptian provenance, but which spread throughout the Mediterranean world with the spread of Hellenistic Egyptian astrology and appear in various systems of thought and practice. So in the Testament of Solomon, we're in a kind of hybrid cosmos. And I think that's due to the fact that the overarching frame narrator, the the voice of Solomon, is living pretty much in an old-fashioned three-part world, but is drawing on lots of materials from a broader magical tradition, which uh, involve more up-to-date Hellenistic cosmological ideas. There are also some hints of further structures. Uh, Tartaros exists, which is probably a kind of sub-underworld below the regular underworld, though this isn't actually made explicit in the text. And multiple heavens exist as well. We don't get a systematic exposition of heavenly realms, but occasional references, like to the angel Bazazath, who dwells in the second heaven at 14.8 of the text, shows us that we might be in something at least vaguely like the angelic heaven levels familiar from Hechelod Merkava texts and from the Sefer Harazim. We generally get either three or sevenfold heavens in these second temple and second temple adjacent cosmologies. So if the author ever even posed the question as to how many heavens there are, well, three or seven is a good guess. But the author may never have posed such a question. The reference to Bazazath in the second heaven was most likely imported wholesale into the text in the process of remixing already existing demonological and angelological lore into this new Christian testament form. So seemingly we don't really have an overarching cosmological framework of any kind of astronomical stamp, but bits of more Hellenistic cosmological ideas have filtered into the text through the importation and remixing of magical material. As for demonology, this text will tell us, quote, what their authorities are against men and by what angels these demons are thwarted, end of quote. Okay. In a sense, this book can be considered a book of practical magic, of a protective nature. As we shall see, we learn the names and attributes of a whole host of demonic entities, and in almost every case, 
we learn what angel can thwart the demon in question. Sometimes it's enough to know the angel's name and say, such an angel drive out such a demon, and that's going to do the job instantly. Sometimes there's also some other stuff that helps drive out the demons, drawn from the pharmacopoeia of traditional magic. Occasionally as well, we get a demon who needs a special secret name to be driven off, or who can only be driven out by Jesus. As for Jesus, let us recall that he hasn't been born yet, uh, since we are notionally in the 10th century BC listening to Solomon narrate his testament, right? However, the author is aware of this, and it, it's explained. Some of the demons know about Jesus and are afraid of him because they can foretell the future, something we shall come back to in this episode. Now, combining these two concerns, cosmology and demonology, we get a truly peculiar worldview in this text if we want to try to read it as having a cohesive worldview. The demons both are and are not associated with astral bodies, and both are and are not integrated into quasi-astrological ideas about astral fate. As Dooling says in his introduction to his translation, quote, what is most characteristic of the Testament's cosmology is the combination of astrology and demonology. Demons are said to reside, kemai in Greek, in a star or constellation, aster, as well as in a sign of the zodiac. One demon travels with the moon. The stars are usually viewed as demonic and seem to have a special destructive power over those humans who share the same constellation. In chapter 8, seven small stars, the rulers of this world of darkness, are described as seven vices. Each is responsible for certain religious, social, or political evils, and each, with the exception of the last, has a thwarting angel. In chapter 18, the stars are the 36 world rulers of the darkness of this age, the first of whom is called the first decan of the zodiac. This refers to the 36 decans, or deities, each of whom rules over 10 degrees of the 360-degree zodiac, a widespread astrological concept in the ancient world. However, in the Testament, the deckhands are demons who cause mental and physical illness. End of quote. While I think we are right to try to point out that there is some kind of worldview in the Testament of Solomon, which is what Dueling is doing here, McCown is also more or less right to point out that, quote, the Testament is a collection of astrological, demonological, and magical lore brought together without any attempt at consistency. The writer attempts no science or philosophy of demonology. Indeed, he is a compiler rather than an author. End of quote. Yes, but ordinary folks don't necessarily need science or philosophy or consistency in their worldview. I feel like every lived cosmos, be it ever so folksy, has its cosmology, be it ever so haphazard. The cosmology that emerges here is sloppy and doesn't seem to follow many rules, except that demons are everywhere and they are associated with the stars and planets for sure, though we needn't look for any system of how that works, which would satisfy an ancient astrologer. And there are countless angels as well, knowing whose names can nullify the powers of pretty much all the demons. I'd call that a worldview, even if it doesn't make the cut as a scientific cosmology in any sense. Okay. Now let's get into this text a little bit. Solomon, for it is he, 
narrates that while they were building the temple, a pesky demon, that's actually how he's referred to in the translation, starts interfering with the son of the master workman of the temple. So we've started out with humans building the temple, right? But one of their sons is being interfered with. The boy starts to wither away because this demon comes every night and sucks his right thumb. So he's somehow kind of sucking the life juice out of him. Solomon finds out what's been happening and goes into the temple and prays to God to get authority over the demons. Wait a minute. I thought the temple wasn't built yet, I hear someone say. No, gentle listener, it isn't. So then how, well, just don't ask questions, okay? I think the author forgot. Or maybe this is Solomon going up to the building site or something like that. At any rate, our author may have been so enthrall of the set piece of Solomon going to the temple, praying to God, and then things happening, which we find in the biblical sources that we talked about last time, that he just made it occur despite the small difficulty that there is no temple yet. Anyway, God, called by the Hebrew name Sabaoth, the Hebrew God has a ton of names, as we know, in various different textual sources and in the scriptural material, but this one and Yao seem to be particularly common in magical and exorcistic contexts. Uh, this is my anecdotal finding. I haven't done an analysis of the different names of the Hebrew God and where they appear, but it does seem like Sabaot and Yao are especially popular in these sorts of settings. Sabaot sends the archangel Michael, who brings Solomon a ring with a seal on it, engraved upon a precious gemstone. And this is the only time that an angel acts in the text. The zillions of angel names we're going to be treated to in what follows serve only as prophylactics to various demonic attacks. Now, Michael is an archangelos, an archangel, and this title, which we also find elsewhere in the text, is basically our only glimpse into angelic hierarchies in this worldview. Seemingly, the author just believes in loads of angels without trying to arrange them in choirs or heavens or whatever. But we do at least have the big boys, the archangels. Now, what's on this seal of Solomon? Different recensions of the text give different answers. In one, it's the pentagram. So yes, gentle listener, the pentagram has now officially appeared in the podcast. Although to be fair, there is a lot of older tradition associating it with Neopythagorean traditions, which we haven't covered. So this isn't anything like our oldest esoteric pentagram. Still, one idea of the Seal of Solomon is that it's a pentagram, which is no doubt one ingredient in the story of how the pentagram came to be seen as the all-purpose symbol of oogly-boogly occultness as it functions today in popular occulture. But other recensions give completely different descriptions of the seal, and some don't describe it at all. McCown thinks that the earliest form of the text gave no description or diagram whatsoever, uh, which sounds about right to me. But then, of course, later uh, copiers couldn't resist adding the Seal of Solomon to the text. Still, pentagram, great band, pentangle were good as well. So Solomon tells us that he then gives the boy the ring, tells him to hurl it at the demon, and then command the demon to appear before Solomon, and also give the ring back to Solomon. All of this happens, and Solomon then interrogates the demon who's been bound by the ring. He asks him, in which sign of the zodiac do you reside? In Aquarius, answers the demon. The demon then tells Solomon that he can take three different forms 
and can be thwarted by the archangel Uriel, that his name is Ornias. Solomon then sets Ornias the job of cutting stones for the temple. But Ornias tries to cut a deal with him. He says, Solomon, please go easy on me, and I can get all the other demons to come to you. So he's basically grassing up his demon buddies, but what would you expect from a demon, right? Anyway, Solomon says, all right, bring me Beelzebul, prince of the demons. And Ornias complies. Now let's pause for a second. A lot of the Testament of Solomon takes the form of a repeated set piece. And we've just seen the first iteration of this, though there are variations here and there. The set piece is basically demon appears, Solomon interrogates it, gets its name, the nasty stuff it does to humans, and by what angel or holy name it can be thwarted, then sets it to work on some aspect of the temple project. That's your basic formula. Solomon usually praises God for giving him the authority to boss the demons about as part of this formula as well, but not always. The order changes and not every element is present every time, but this is the basic program. Sometimes you can pretty much see where the compiler author has stretched source material around the Procrustean bed of this set piece structure. So we'll skip a lot of the repetitive detail as we go through the text, but you get the idea. Anyway, so Solomon now has Beelzebul, who is the daddy of all the demons and rules the earth. While Beelzebul is given the title of the ruler of the demons, that's about all we get in terms of demonic hierarchy in this work. Another demon, Abazethibu, is in charge of Tartaros and seems to be the second in command of Beelzebul. Beelzebul, being the prince of the demons, is able to summon loads of other demons for Solomon to interrogate. So Ornias now kind of leaves the stage. Presumably he's on stone-cutting duty from now on. Incidentally, as to the demon names and such, some of them, including Beelzebul that we just mentioned, and Asmodeus, who appears later, and a few others, have well-attested lives elsewhere in the Jewish and then Christian tradition. Asmodeus is the big baddie of the book of Tobit, for example a deuterocanonical book of the Hebrew scriptures. Deuterocanonical means it's not exactly canon, but no one says it's heretical either, so it's kind of like recommended reading, but not essential reading, if you see what I mean. So you'll find the book of Tobit in many Bibles. So some of these demons are important and have large bodies of lore built up around them. Others only appear in the Testament of Solomon, as far as surviving texts go. And some of the demon names we're going to encounter were probably just just made up ad hoc. Solomon will now go on to boss Beelzebul around for a while, making him bring him various other demons. Solomon wants to see a female demon first, so Beelzebul summons Onoskelis, she of the ass's legs in Greek, uh, who indeed lives up to her name. After the usual scene, he sets her spinning hemp ropes for the temple building site. I wonder if the fact that she is set to spin uh, which is a traditionally female occupation, is actually an example of a kind of gendered uh, division of work among the demons. But I'll just, I just leave that as a, a little aside. He then summons Asmodeus, who is associated with the constellation of the Great Bear. The Great and Lesser Bears are the, the two polar constellations in the far, far north of the sky. And he is thwarted by the archangel Raphael, but can also be repulsed through burning a liver and the gall of a certain fish. 
So here we have an example of non-angelic banishing practices sort of creeping into the text, as we mentioned earlier. Asmodeus is set on pottery duty, molding clay for the temple project. Then Solomon goes back to Beelzebul and learns more stuff from him. Beelzebul is thwarted by Almighty God. And this passage is interesting because depending on which manuscript you're looking at, there is some really interesting alphanumeric stuff going on. In manuscript P, and you have to see Macown for the, the manuscript uh, stemma classification, he is thwarted by the holy and awesome name, etc. Quote, called by the Hebrews by a row of numbers, characteres, the sum of which is 644. Among the Greeks, it is Emmanuel. So, Emmanuel does indeed add up to 644, and it looks like this is an example of the tradition of Greek Cephi, or Greek uh, alphanumeric speculation, numerology. Again, depending on the manuscript we're looking at, there has been some very interesting alphanumeric stuff going on in this text. It's become very garbled over time, but it's an early-ish example of the kind of stuff that we saw already in the um, Greek Apocalypse of John in the New Testament, right? A mysterious name that adds up to a number. Then we have the demon Lix Tetrax, demon of the wind. He is responsible for fevers. His thwarting angel is the archangel Azael, and Solomon sets him to raising stones for the temple. Then the seven heavenly stoichea appear. The Greek term stoicheon, as we know, if we listen to our oddcast episode with Juan Acevedo on all things alphanumeric, stoicheon means most basically element or constituent of something. And it can mean letter of the alphabet, physical element, and more. But here it has its astronomical, astrological context, and seems to mean planet, um, because there's seven of them. It can also mean constellation in this context, but I think we are looking at the planets or planetary spheres. The number seven is the giveaway. These seven stoichia are named deception, strife, fate, distress, error, power, and the worst. The reference to fate is clearly a kind of garbled, at least, reference to the general late antique astrological worldview in which the planets are the instruments of fate and cause everything to happen down here below the moon. But it's also equally clear that we're not in anything like a technical astrological worldview. This passage reminds one of nothing so much as the planetary vices, which have to be driven out by the noetic virtues in Corpus Hermeticum 13. This isn't technical astrology, but the motif found in technical astrology that the planets are a kind of imprisoning network surrounding us and influencing us, often in negative ways, i.e. Mars makes people wrathful, Venus makes them prone to lechery, that sort of thing. This has been transferred to a non-technical folk belief register. The planets are intelligent, willful demons which cause vices in humans, which are the vices embodied, which indeed include among their number fate, now demoted to one evil among many, as opposed to the rather sophisticated understandings of fate found in contemporary discussions of the question of human freedom and so on. 
This, I would argue, gives us a glimpse of a really transformed folk reception of ideas originating in ancient astrology. At any rate, these seven stoichia are set to digging foundation holes for the temple. We then meet a headless demon called Murder, a gigantic dog-shaped demon known as Scepter, a lion-shaped demon, a three-headed dragon spirit known as Head of the Dragon. Uh, For this fella, or should that be fellas, you need to thwart him with, quote, he who will dwell publicly on the cross, end of quote. So here's an open reference to Christ. We don't actually have that many of these in this text, but this is one of them for sure. Anyway, we note again that the demons know that Christ is coming in the future. Remember, all of this happened way back in the 10th century BCE, and we'll come back to their knowledge of the future in a minute. Obizduth, a female demon with disheveled hair, appears next. This particular hairdo, the disheveled look, seems to have been popular in the demonic demimonde of late antiquity. See the incantation bowl uh, B16023 from Nippur, depicted alongside our special episode with Daniel Waller, for a graphic example, uh, an actual picture of the demon, demoness with disheveled hair. Lilin, a kind of generic Jewish demon or demoness, often have disheveled hair as their signature look in various contexts. So this is a nice little crossover between our text and the magical culture preserved in the incantation bowls. Solomon then interrogates a winged dragon with human feet and face. And if you try to imagine that, it's actually pretty freaky. We then meet Enepsigos, a female demon with two heads. And she is associated with the planet Saturn, or Kronos in Greek. Solomon ties her up with a chain, and then she prophesies that his kingdom will be divided, the temple destroyed, and Jerusalem sacked by the Persians, Medes, and Chaldeans. And then that demons shall run rampant across the earth until the Son of God is crucified, which will put an end to their impunity upon the earth. Okay, these prophecies will all come true, of course, according to the scriptural reading of history. Solomon's kingdom does indeed fall apart after his death. See last episode. The Persians, Medes, and Chaldeans refer to the so-called Babylonian captivity, which sees Solomon's temple destroyed and uh, Jerusalem razed. And the idea that Jesus' crucifixion sort of put an end to the reign of the demons is a common Christian notion. Now, these prophecies of this demoness will appear again at the end of the Testament. We then meet Kunopegos, who is a horse in front and a fish behind. Lovely demon form. And then we get a lecherous spirit, a spirit of sort of venery, who is actually the ghost of one of the giants from the Age of Giants, i.e. a dead member of the Nephilim, or Watchers, the Egregores, as they are known in the Greek Enoch tradition. So this guy fears Jesus, who is coming, and he can be driven off by the sign of the cross. I find this demon particularly interesting, the ghost of a dead giant. That is a weird and cool idea. And an interesting um, playing out of the Enochic tradition. 
Then we come to section 18 of our text, a long section which has probably provoked the greatest amount of commentary of all the sections of the Testament of Solomon. This is where we get the list of the Deccan demons and what they can each do. They are again called Stoichea, as were the seven planetary demons from earlier, but they have clearly got to be the Deccans. Each one gives his name. Uh, names like Ruax, Barsafael, Svandor, Belbel, etc. Belbel sounds rather cute for a plague-bringing astral demon, but never mind. And each Deccan lists an ailment for which he is responsible. They all also supply the name of the angel who thwarts them. The names given by the demons for themselves conform to no known Egyptian Deccan lists from antiquity or later, and are mostly the kind of fake Hebrew found everywhere in the Greek magical papyri and other popular magical texts. Nevertheless, they do show occasional echoes of the original Egyptian form of the Deccans, and we have multiple Egyptian uh, Deccan texts, so it's not that the Egyptians had one standard uh, list of names or anything like that. But what we do get here, as in the sort of native Egyptian texts about the Deccans, is the belief that each Deccan is responsible for diseases of a particular part of the body, starting with the head, and a few of the names in our text, enough to show that this material has some remote affiliation to Egyptian ideas about the Deccans, are kind of echoes of Egyptian terms. In this section of the Testament, we also find some Asema Onomata, or Wokes Magikai, barbarous names of invocation. McCown suggests that because these magic words are more common later in section 18, that a Jewish editor began removing them from some heathen magical writing so as to incorporate it into an earlier work of Jewish magic or into the Testament of Solomon, in which case it would have been a Christian editor, um, but then ran out of patience and let a load of the Wokis Magikai slip through. That could be, but uh, I don't know. It doesn't really ring true. If you're going to take out the Wokis Magikai, you're going to take them all out. At any rate, this section, like many others, has all the appearance of having been taken from some magical text and sort of smushed into the question-and-answer Solomonic framework. After this, we get a brief description of the Queen of Sheba's visit to Solomon, how impressed she was by Jerusalem and the temple, and we learn that she was a sorceress, a goace. This is our earliest recorded instance of this tradition, uh, the tradition that the Queen of Sheba is a witch, which went on to have a long life. You can see why. I mean, it's, it's very easy to conflate the Queen of Sheba in the Solomonic narrative with the later scary foreign women that Solomon falls for who lead him from the true faith, right? Then the demon Ornias from the beginning reappears in the narrative. Uh, presumably he's been given a break from his stone-cutting duty. And he explains to Solomon how it is that demons know the future. They fly up as close to heaven as they can get and eavesdrop on what the angels are saying. But they cannot stay there and they fall back down, which the text describes as a sort of fiery re-entry. So it seems to be the case that shooting stars seen in the heavens are actually demon eavesdroppers falling back to earth. Now this idea, that the demons can know the future through sort of demonic spying, reappears again, for example, in the Talmud, and in the Qur'an, as does the fiery re-entry. In the Qur'an, the idea seems to be that the angels hurl fiery missiles at the demons to knock them down, who then plummet to earth. 
we then get a few more demons and stuff. We're going to have to skip the details in the interest of time. And in section 26, Solomon falls madly in love with a Shumanite woman, but is told that he cannot have her unless he sacrifices some locusts to the Jebusite gods Raphan and Molech. Solomon thinks, ah, it's just a few locusts. What harm can it do? After all, this woman is really hot. And, and he actually even gives a kind of firsthand, like, you don't understand how gorgeous this gal was. Little aside in the text, which is quite wonderful. However, by sacrificing the locusts, he crosses the line and he lost the grace of God. The closing lines of the Testament call back to the prophecies of coming strife within Israel delivered by the demoness Enepsigos saying that it was because of Solomon's sin in sacrificing the locusts that all these horrible things will come to pass. And Solomon explains that this is why he wrote down the Testament, to let others know that you need to be proper monotheists, and even a few locusts sacrificed to false gods is enough to ruin everything. This brings us to the end of our introduction to Solomon and all things Solomonic, as well as to a fascinating and important text in the early-ish history of the development of the Solomonic mystique. Boy, is that mystique going to be important to Western esotericism going forward. When demons need summoning, binding, or otherwise manipulating, King Solomon is your man. Whether you are a Jew, an East Roman, a Latinate, high medieval magical practitioner, or a Muslim, the works attributed to Solomon will only grow as time goes on. The rich artistic legacy of seals, engraved gems, magical rings, and so on will expand exponentially. The demonologies will become more and more complex, and the whole edifice of the Solomonic as a genre will go from strength to strength. The magic found in the Testament of Solomon, the astute listener will have noticed, is all defensive magic, or arguably medical magic, right? Because these demons are, are sometimes personifications of illnesses. It will not surprise us then that the very name of Solomon will continue to have sovereign virtue in a generally protective way. We have a talismanic bronze from the East Roman Middle Ages depicting Solomon himself mounted on a horse, presumably in a protection from demons' capacity. And the many virtues of Solomon's seal for protecting one from malevolent forces are well known, but we shall be exploring them in detail in the podcast. But it's not only in the realm of the angelically and demonically magical that Solomon's name will hold sway. Solomon's story plays out in the medieval expansions of the romance of the Queen of Sheba, in which we see very interesting interplays between two different and very gendered approaches to magic or powerful ritual. The masculine book-learned magus, right? And the feminine untamed wild magic of witchcraft, you might say. There are some powerful tropes there which will return in the history of the Solomonic tradition. As we mentioned last time, the Solomon depicted in the Testament, the powerful Magus who sacrifices everything for the love of a beautiful woman, is also very much a prototype of the later figure of Faust, and functions as a powerful emblem of dark outsider knowledge in the esoteric canon of later centuries. As builder of the temple, through supernatural power, of course, Solomon is a crucial figure for all kinds of esoteric lore associated with the temple. And we look forward to tracing that intellectual lineage down the centuries, through the three major Abrahamic strands, and even arguably out the other side into esoteric Masonic lore, some of which could be considered 
post-Abrahamic in certain ways, at least when you get to the Enlightenment period. When the medieval clerics of the Latin West sat down to practice the Ars Notoria so as to master all of the sciences with angelic help, Solomon was there, but he was also there after 1776 when the founders of the fledgling American Republic sat down to rebuild the temple as a new form of government which would usher in a new order of the ages, a great restoration along very esoteric lines. Next week, we shall be continuing with our Jewish and Christian and Jewish-Christian cultural explorations in late antiquity, having a look at the contours of early Christian magic, since we've actually already been doing that with this look at the Testament of Solomon. What did magic look like in Christianity, the religion that was supposed to forbid all forms of magic? Well, there's more magic in early Christianity than at Hogwarts, it turns out, but you have to know where to look for it. Join us next time as we turn over a few rocks, and until then, stay esoteric. <laughs>